Anyhow, let's move on now to our discussion point uh, for today. And um, for those of you who like the topic, the topic is a year of great grace. This I find quite interesting. I love the scripture here. I love this scripture. This is from the Amplified Bible. I don't often use the Amplified Bible, but I, I really feel that this brings out the strength in the key words in this passage. So Acts 4.33. And with great ability and power, the apostles were continuously testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace God's remarkable loving kindness and favour and goodwill rested richly upon them all. I love that. I, I think I'm having a poster made and stick it up here for the whole year. Um, with great ability and power. I believe that. The apostles were yep. continuously testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace God's remarkable loving kindness and favour and goodwill rested richly upon them all. I just love that. And uh, it's interesting because I first heard this as a, if you like, a prophetic word for 2022 from a, a guy who regularly comes to the monthly prayer meeting that I attend with a bunch of pastors from around the Gold Coast and it, it just struck a chord with me. That was in early December and since then I've been pondering on it and I've been doing a little bit of research on it and it seems to me that a lot of churches around the world at some point or other, there seem to be lots and lots doing this around 2012, 2013. They were saying this is a year of God's great grace. Now, I don't know, looking back at 2012-13, whether that made a big difference in the world. But the more I've pondered on this, the more I feel that this is actually a word not just for us, but for the church. All of the followers of Jesus Christ. And I thought that this morning I'd share some of my thoughts on this passage and you can take it and, and meditate on it and, and pray about it see what God has to say to you about whether or not this is a verse of scripture which is applicable in a prophetic sense for this year even this morning as I was reading over my notes I, I was thinking about the fact that I have a strong sense that there will be revival in our area. And I've shared with you some months ago, and over a period of time actually, that there are a lot of pastors on the Gold Coast who feel the same thing, that God is readying us for a major revival. And, and, and that revival, it would involve hundreds of thousands of people because there are hundreds of thousands of people, Brisbane, Gold Coast, this um, southeast Queensland corner, there are hundreds of thousands of people who have never encountered Jesus. They might believe in God as a kind of concept, a, a remote deity, 
who essentially set the world in motion and sits back and just watches how everything unfolds. There are those who go to church, but they're really cultural Christians. They haven't got a, a living, daily, personal walk with the Lord. And I, I was thinking early this morning that, you know, we're the agents through which revival happens. Because we're the ones who are connected with families, neighbourhoods, workplaces, schools, sporting um, organisations and so on. So we're, we're the ones, we're the ones who have this great ability and power to be able to continuously testify to the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is the central point of the Christian faith. Remember, to become a Christian, you've got to believe in your heart that God rose him from the dead. And you know, as we go about testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, we have this great grace richly upon us. So let me explain a little bit about Acts 4.33. We can go to the next slide. Thank you, Tamara. The, you know, we have to be careful, of course, about building a doctrine or, or a prophetic word on just a scrap of Scripture. I, I think sometimes that is true. And, and you'll actually find every now and then in the epistles there is Scripture from the Old Testament that is quoted, but it's not in the same context. So occasionally, yes, God will use just a, a line or a few words from Scripture and it won't always be in the original context. So we do need to be aware of that. We need to be wise as we listen to prophetic words that are shared. But in terms of Acts 43, it is in a context. Uh, the first thing to note is that this is a description of something that was going on in the first Christian church. Right? These were mainly Jewish uh, Christians it was early days uh, many of those who were Christians would have had personal knowledge of Jesus and what he taught and the miracles that he performed right? they would have been there and seen Jesus in action the church was still so young that it really didn't have a whole set of institutional Frameworks, So it didn't have a, a hierarchy of uh, positions within the church. There were no full-time ministers or anything like that. There was no professional evangelism. There were no missionaries, for example, that were, were paid or supported by the church to go and spread this message of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Instead, it was an individual responsibility These individuals, not always on their own, but often in groups, but they took responsibility for evangelism. They couldn't leave it up 
to the professionals, the pastors who are paid by the church, the, the missionaries who are supported by missionary societies and so on. That really didn't happen for another few hundred years. So that's important because this passage, Act 4.33, refers to the apostles, merely meaning those who are sent out. They're sent out with, with a message. So it's not the church as a collective noun there. It's the individuals who made up the church who took on the role of evangelists. The second point I'd like to make is that when you read the full context, and I would suggest that you need to read Acts 4 verses 32 through to 35, they sold their stuff whenever there was a need. Let me just read the full um, set of verses, Acts 4, 32 uh, to 35. And I'm using the New King James Version in case you want to know. Uh, I've also made a note here. See also chapter 2 of Acts, verses 44 to 45. So you might want to have a look at that a little later on. Verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of those of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. Now this is actually quite a controversial passage in Scripture. It actually led to the development a few centuries ago of what we would call Christian communism today where there is no private ownership, everything is held in common. And in fact, the original Plymouth pilgrims who established a European presence in what we now call the United States of America, they had all agreed, they'd signed up to a plan which was called the Common Course and Condition. Just another expression for Christian communism. They failed. It failed miserably. And it failed for two reasons. There were some people who were lazy and they didn't work. It failed also because some people were envious of those who didn't work but got an equal share of the output of their farming and other enterprises. And it didn't take very long for production to stop altogether virtually stop altogether. People couldn't be bothered sowing seed, planting crops, because they didn't benefit from their own input. It was actually the Indians who rescued them. Other things happened as well that they were, they were planning to make money by exporting fur to Europe. Their first shipment of fur was um, overtaken by pirates. I think it never made it to Europe, so they never got any money for it. Virtually the colony started to starve and if it wasn't for the Indians who showed them how uh, to grow crops under that, those particular climatic conditions, it's almost certain that the whole lot of them would have died. Now William Bradford, who had been elected 
as their governor. He wrote in his diary, the common course and condition goes against the wisdom of God because of human sin. A lot of books don't add that bit, but I've actually read his original diary entry. It was because of the sin of indolence and the sin of envy that the system collapsed. Now, I've done some reading about this because as an economist, the whole thing troubles me a lot. Was God saying that as Christians, we shouldn't own our own house or our own land or our own possessions, that we should sell everything and kind of pool it in the church? I don't actually think so. A couple of reasons. First, from just a purely pragmatic perspective, point of view, if you do that, then all you've got to work with is whatever assets exist at the time they are sold. Unless there's productive enterprise, there is no further wealth creation. And that's the big problem with socialism, the big problem with communism, is that because of human sin, people have no incentive to actually create wealth by producing new goods and services. So I don't, and, and, and actually if you look through the Bible, there's so much evidence that this is not a godly system. So I don't think that's what it meant at all. And those early Christian communists, and it was quite a powerful force in England uh, for a period, but it just didn't work. And, and eventually the idea kind of dropped out Although we do know, of course, that there's communism and socialism in the world today. I did some, some reading on, on the sort of cultural mores of the day. And actually, there was no society really, other than a very few small ones, that actually lived literally, as those words say. Uh, we believe from historical records that the Essenes, um, a Jewish sect, a very small sect, there was probably no more than 4,000 of them. They lived without private property. They shared everything in common. So that information has come from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Also, there were some Greek idealists, such as the Pythagoreans, who rejected private property. But those were two very, very rare exceptions. Another thing I'd like to point out is this. There are a lot of references to Christians meeting in one another's houses, right? There's no way they all sold their houses and held them in common because the, in the, the early church, the, they used to go to the synagogue on, on Shabbat. That's where they got their teaching. But on, on the first day of the week, on Sunday... They used to meet in each other's houses where they would take a meal, break bread, and have communion. And there are quite a few references, particularly in the book of Acts, to houses owned by individual Christians. So there's no way that they all sold everything they had and pulled it. It doesn't work, and we know that because it's been tried in a few places. So what's this passage getting at in terms of 
selling up land and, and houses. What we do know is that the early Christians sold property where, whenever anyone had need. So how do we apply that today? We look after our sisters and brothers in the church. In fact, the Bible makes it pretty clear our first responsibility is to our brothers and sisters in the church, like our families, household, and our brothers and sisters in the church. It's not actually to all those other good causes outside the church, believe it or not. Right? Charity begins at home, and it's almost true that it stays at home. That might not... Read the Word of God, and it's very, very clear that we're, we're to look after one another before we worry about everyone. See, the most important need the rest of the world has is to know Jesus. Sometimes the method by which we bring people into the kingdom of God is to meet their felt needs. That might be poverty or sickness or whatever. Loneliness. But we've got a bigger responsibility to looking after each other than we have to looking after people outside the church, I'm talking here about the whole church, not just an individual congregation. So what, what happened in the early church when they saw a need, if the only way they could look after that need was to sell something, they did. Right? So I'm not going to teach from the pulpit that to be a good Christian, you've got to go and sell everything you own, bring it into the church, Right? It probably mean I'd be able to live a higher life. <laughs> but I don't think that's God's way at all. And um, this, this, I think, really emphasises how dangerous it is to build a whole doctrine or a whole way of life based on a scrap of Scripture. However, it is true. They did sell their stuff whenever there was a need because they didn't want to have, or God's heart, of course, is that nobody goes without in the body of Christ. The other thing that I think is important in terms of the context of 433 is that there was such unity and power that great grace followed, or perhaps followed is not the best word, maybe great grace accompanied that unity and power. See, it says here in verse 32, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. That's a picture of unity. Then it goes on in verse 33 to say, power and grace, or great grace. So, let me move on. What does it mean for us in 2022? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for the body of Christ? What does it mean for us as a congregation? I believe three things, and, and you may be able to add more, but there are at least three things that I think are apparent from Acts 4.33 and its context. The first is that we are united. The second is that we are bold. The third is that we're generous. We're one heart and soul. With great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. 
nor was there anyone among them who lacked. I want to share with you just a few thoughts I have in terms of each of those three uh, implications for us in 2022. How do we become united? Well, let me just say this right at the outset. It doesn't mean we agree on everything, right? I, I know that, that, that often in Christian circles there's a really high premium based on consensus. Now, there's a few things in which we need consensus, like the resurrection of Jesus. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you're just not a Christian, okay? So there are some areas where there must be consensus, but there are a lot of areas in which disagreement is to be expected and it's okay. So you might not agree that we should start church at 9.30 on Sunday, right? That doesn't mean disunity. I'm pretty certain that I've said things from the pulpit that not everyone agrees with all the time. That's not disunity. It, that's actually okay. Right? Where, where they're not, you know, issues concerned with the central rock, you know, bedrock doctrines of Christianity, there's room for disagreement. Now, we do need to disagree agreeably, all right? So we've got to be courteous with one another. We've got to be kind to one another. But unity is not actually about consensus or, or agreement. Let me suggest there are three things that are, or if you like, that underpin unity. And these are not necessarily in the order of importance. First, build up one another. This is one of the things we're called to do as Christians, to build one another up. That is, let's be encouraging to one another. Find something positive to say about one another and to one another. Second, and again a biblical principle, prefer one another. That is, give preference to one another. Put your needs behind the needs of others in the church. The third is to love one another. Remember, Jesus is, uh, is reported in uh, the book of John, the Gospel of John, is saying, a new commandment I give you. Love one another. I actually think this is God's secret weapon for salvation of the world. <laughs> when we love one another, that's when the world will take notice. And you know what? We're not always lovable. It's not an easy thing to love one another with the love of God. So I don't think it's got much to do with us agreeing on things at all. Unity has more to do with the way in which we handle our relationships with one another. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Prefer one another and love one another. The second is to be bold. <laughs> I, I didn't read anything in this area. I couldn't find anything in this area. 
So here are my thoughts. The first is to practice courage. You know, the first time you do something is usually the hardest. The first time you share something about the gospel is going to be the hardest. It actually takes a lot of courage. I, I think to be a Christian requires, just to be a Christian requires a good deal of courage. For a start, you're putting your life in God's hands. You actually become vulnerable because you start to do life with other people in the local church. Practice courage. Receive the power of the Holy Spirit. This, this is, yes, about baptism in the Holy Spirit. And that's something I'd love to talk with you about if you've never yet received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. But receive it. The whole, the whole purpose of baptism in the Holy Spirit, the purpose is not so you can speak in tongues. That's evidence, if you like, but the purpose of baptism in the Holy Spirit is not so that you can speak in tongues, but so that you are empowered to do as the Lord asks. So you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to become an evangelist, to share with others the wonderful truth of God's word. And the other thing is to work with others. Don't feel you actually have to do it as a lone ranger. You don't have to do it as a lone ranger. And, and we can actually be more courageous, you know, when we are with others. It's a funny thing, isn't it? When we're with others. So practice courage. Receive the power of the Holy Spirit and work with others. Hang out with others. Maybe go shopping with others. I don't know. Um, you have to act, obviously work, work, work that out. But I, I really don't think God actually expects us to do everything on our own. In fact, I don't think he expects us to do very much at all on our own. That's because God designed us to be in community. It's one of the reasons why I love the local church. The third point here was, was generous. We need to be generous. Well, we've already talked about the importance of giving generously to those among us in need. I, I confess that I really don't support charities and so on that aren't Christian charities because I, I believe so strongly in, in the idea that we need to look after those who are in the church, in the body of Christ. So give generously to those among us in need. And often, no one will see, no one will notice that giving because you become aware that a sister or brother has a need and you deal with it. Sometimes it will be too big for you to deal with it as an individual and you might then need to work through, say, the whole of the, of, of the church or something like that. But consider how generous you are when you see a need in one of your sisters or brothers in the church. Second, and again, this is not in order of importance, give generously to the church. I've, 
I, I thought hard about, well, I didn't really think hard about it. I thought for about 30 seconds about whether I should say this at all. But you see, the church is one of the most fundamental institutional um, frameworks in our society. We, we tend to take it for granted in Australia and definitely we take it for granted in the city. But once you get out into rural and regional areas, there are no offices of state or federal governments. There's no Centrelink office that people can go to. The first place that many people go to when they're suffering hardship is the local church. We know that because, as it were, the head office of Ignite Life Church is in Yarrawonga, which is a country town, and the other campus in Victoria is in Cobram, which is also a country town. Not too many government services are available there. But God loves the local church, and the local church gets a pretty bad press a lot of the time, and, and honestly, not every pastor behaves appropriately. Uh, not every church manages financial resources appropriately. Uh, and we need to address that. But remember, Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And, and, and one of the areas of giving is the local church. I give generously to Christian ministries as the Holy Spirit leads you. Um, I wouldn't expect that, that anybody um, sitting in our church would only give to Ignite Life Church. There are other ministries which are definitely worthy of receiving support. Um, many of you, maybe most, will actually receive very valuable spiritual input from, say, online ministries or other ministries, as we do. So there are three or four uh, ministries that uh, we um, access on a pretty regular basis, and we support them. Uh, you know, we sponsor children through Compassion, for example, as well. Uh, just two. We've had two children through Compassion for 20 or 30 years now, for a very long time. So I wouldn't um, ever want to argue that the only place that you bring tithes and offerings would be the local church, because you will be associated with other ministries or you will receive valuable spiritual input from other ministries and you should support them. And finally, and maybe I should have said this first, you can be generous when you're confident enough to take God at his word. Remember in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says, stop worrying about your need for food, clothing and shelter. And he concludes his homily by saying this, seek the kingdom and all these material things will be added to you. So if one of the things that holds you back from being generous is fear that you won't have enough to cover your own needs, Jesus has addressed that already. We don't have to worry. My own experience and testimony, since the day I got what I call born again again, when I, when I, after having kind of walked away from the Lord for a decade or so, from the day that I recommitted myself to the Lord, I've been tithing and Jeanette started a week later. I can remember when I first started tithing, I took 
it was just the 10 percent we tithe more than that now but it was 10 percent i said here's 10 percent i said half of that jeanette that's yours to do you, you do what you want with that and then the other half i took into the church now as it turned out a week later jeanette came to the church and she also recommitted herself to the lord and the one thing that we actually if we've ever had any arguments or dissent it's more about how generous we're going to be not not giving in the first place and, and Jeanette she leaves me in the shade um, she gives away more than I do and both of my daughters are extremely generous as well um, but I, I can tell you this we, we've never lacked we probably don't have as many things hanging on the wall uh, maybe our car's an older car than a lot of people have that's okay we'll get a new car one day when Jeanette gives up work, we're going to go from two cars to one and we'll probably buy a new car then. But, so we don't have to worry about any of that, that at all. Because this is the promise. Seek the kingdom and all these material things will be added to you. I, I've never sat down to calculate how much we've paid in tithes and offerings since 1989 when we both recommitted ourselves to the Lord. Wouldn't have a clue. But the one thing I do know is that we've met every bill, every financial requirement. We've got a nice house, there's no debt. We pay off our credit. We use a credit card because we get points on it and can buy stuff with it. But uh, we always pay, pay it at the end of the month. We have no debt. God is so good. He really is so good. And um, you know, when my car was starting to give me problems, and I was starting to think, oh, I don't know whether I'm going to get a new one. And yet we've got it fixed really, really cheaply and it's going well again. It's more important to seek the kingdom than it is to worry about provision. So I, I can thoroughly recommend a generous lifestyle. So I just want to finish off by saying something that you don't usually find. Uh, and in all the research I did for my discussion point today, no one actually said this. Now, you've heard this from me before because I've talked before about generosity. But you see, none of these things, these nouns, united, bold and generous, they will only actually be outworking us as individuals and in our local church as a, an entity if we do three things. We've got to align our thought patterns with the ideas of us being united, bold and generous. In other words, we've got to, we, we have to think about the issues like preferring others and uh, building others up and loving others. It's got to be in our thought process. We need to put down any negative thoughts that come into our minds in relation to others. We need to see in our minds us being bold in spreading the good news about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you've got to think bold. You've got to build a picture of yourself up as not, not, not mousy, right? More lion than lamb in that sense. And then as I said, you've got to practice courage if you want to be bold. 
So mind, what you think, what you speak, and what you do. And it works in all three of those areas. All three of those areas. Think of yourself as a contributor to unity. Think of yourself as being bold and courageous. Think generously about your situation, your environment, and the people around you. Speak in terms of unity. Remember, not agreement. Unity and agreement are different things altogether. But speak of unity and act in unity. I won't um, spend time on going through generosity again because we've um, addressed that at length a few years ago now and I may in fact do another whole month on generosity a little later in the year. But you see, when I look back on the history of these declarations of Acts 4.33 and a year to come of great grace, what I haven't seen is the evidence of what that great grace produced. So I can find when I look at the literature, people looking forward to a year of great grace, but I can't see reports on what that great grace resulted in. I think we need to think about that passage in terms of uh, our unity, our boldness and our generosity. And we can look back at the end of 22 and say we have a sense of unity as individuals and as a congregation we're bolder than we were before and if we can say as individuals and as a congregation we're more generous than we were before and if we can say we now feel empowered to spread the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we will have experienced the year of great grace. Sharing testimony, I think, you know, like as a church about the things that are happening in our lives where sure. we've been impacted or... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, there are lots and lots of, um, I guess, strategies we can employ. We'll, we'll, perhaps we'll look at some of those. But... I don't want this just to be a verse like that we memorise. I think it's something we've got to actually live out. And I, my feeling is that based on that scripture, it's the unity, the boldness and the generosity. Those three things will be what bring that passage into a living reality for any church, for any, um, for any local church. But my prayer is that it won't just be a slogan. And I, I don't want to put anything on you either. Remember, this is about invitation, not about obligation. I don't want you to feel obligated. This is an invitation to receive that boldness from the Lord and to live in his provision, in his grace. If we can just go back to the, to the quote again right at the beginning. Is that all right tomorrow? Yeah. God's remarkable loving kindness and favour and goodwill. 
May that be our experience.